Good morning. As Brother Kylie already witnessed and brought to us, we have a Resurrection Sunday tradition that's been going on for ages amongst Christians, and it's a call and response. So while we're not together in the same room, we're still going to keep practicing it uh, today. So I will open our time by saying he is risen. He is risen indeed. We're going to try out a few things today. One is a call and response when we're not in the same room, which is odd. But also, as we walk our way through this coronavirus that is encapsulating our world, we're not going to talk about it much today. You may ask why. Here's why. Because this virus is not worthy of our time and attention today. The worst thing a virus can do is bring death. Today, we are going to sing, celebrate, read, learn, and pray about a risen Jesus who defeated death. Therefore, the victory he brings over death is what we choose to focus on. So this current healthcare crisis has many of us with a lot of time on our hands, right? And unfortunately for me, time on our hands is also the void of any sporting events. So filling that time gives us lots of issues. What are we going to do? Here's how I've chosen to fill some of that time. One way I've chosen to solve it is by having an ongoing debate about which five NBA basketball players from an individual decade would actually be the champs if those five players could all play each other in their prime. So there's a lot of caveats here. But I've settled on the 80s team. Okay, so here's my 80s team. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Moses Malone, Isaiah Thomas, and Kevin McHale. Now, I know you can debate who's on it, but these are five in their prime in the 80s. We can debate offline who you, who you think would win or which decade. Feel free to message me because that'll help us take up some of our unoccupied time. So we'll do that. I love having those discussions. But in this discussion with my boys and my dad and also some, some guys I played college basketball with, this ongoing debate, you have to set guidelines for how you evaluate what you're going to choose to measure in belief. In this particular discussion, you're trying to look into history and compare statistics that can be used head to head. It has to be something that can be measurable across eras, right? So some of those things that I would use to evaluate those would be number of wins, right? Wins and losses. Number of championships, how many rings do they have? Scoring titles, all-star selections, these are things that are common across all the decades that you can compare to each other. Too often when we get into these conversations, these debates, one of the things that happens is we start measuring or, or trying to compare things that are not equatable across eras. And then the debate is really mute at that point. You, you could say anything you want because there is no commonality for what you're measuring. Today, as we look at scripture, as we evaluate and as we choose to worship and get behind the resurrection of Christ, there is one common thing across all eras that we can measure, and it's death. Death has been common to every human that's ever walked the face of the earth. There's a saying, it's this, Father Time is undefeated. 
And while I agree with that statement to a degree, I would offer this. It's actually not totally true. He's got one loss on his record. In the end, the people that we examine today, the scriptures we look at today, and the saints that have gone before us have chosen to substantiate the resurrection, both through eyewitness accounts and also by staking their own lives on the legitimacy of it. Those that are in scripture, they intended for this reality of the resurrection to be examined, to be thoroughly examined. They intended for it to be substantiated. And they even intended for it to be compared to the stories of other great men. So that the one true story would rise above. One gospel writer, Luke, and I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Luke. So find with me, Luke. I'm going to read from verse chapter 1, but you can turn to Luke 23, because that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So turn with me in your Bibles, whether you're sitting on your couch or your kitchen table, wherever you are, open a Bible, look at Luke 23 with us. The Gospel writer Luke intends to write an orderly account, he says. And not just an orderly account, but an orderly account based on eyewitnesses. This, he says, is in order that his audience may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. That's in Luke 1, 1 through 4. So if you look in Luke 1, he just puts right out on the table, I'm writing these things on eyewitness accounts so that anyone who examines them could have certainty. That was Luke's intention. We know Luke is the detail-oriented guy, right? He was a doctor. He writes his... His writings are a little bit different than some of the, the other gospel accounts in the fact that he includes the minutia. He's very precise. And his intention, he states in Luke 1. So let's look at what he actually does report in Luke 23. So turn with me to Luke 23. I'm going to read Luke 23, verse 46. One of the things that Luke requires for us to examine precisely is the fact that Jesus surely died. Luke 23, verse 46. It says, Then Jesus, in the, in the course of the crucifixion account, it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke was there. He's recording Jesus' last, final breath. So one detail that Luke wants us to understand is that Jesus truly did die. A couple of verses later, look at verse 53 with me. Another detail Luke includes, he says in verse 53 of chapter 23, then he took it down, referring to the body of Christ. This is about Joseph, Arimathea. Then he took it down, the body, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. So first detail, Luke's including here, is that Jesus truly did die. Second detail, he was put in a tomb. Third detail, look at verse or chapter 24. And I'm going to read now chapter 24, verses 1, all the way down through verse 12. And then we'll look at a couple details that Luke includes for us. Luke 24, verse 1. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. 
taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's one of my favorite statements about the resurrection. Verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother of James, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is Luke's resurrection account at the beginning of chapter 24. And now in, verse, in chapter 23, he establishes these details that Jesus truly did die, that Jesus did get placed in a tomb. And now here in chapter 24, he establishes that three days later, he was no longer there. He had risen. Later in chapter 24, if you look over at verses 41 through 43, this is another detail that Luke includes two more here. In verses 41 through 43, he says, while he was appearing to his disciples, he says, while they were disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So not only did Jesus appear to his disciples, not only did he talk with them and commune with them, earlier in the chapter he broke bread with them, but here he actually eats with them in their presence. It's one of the reasons why I love the account of Luke. He spends time establishing for us the details. Perhaps, possibly, one could accuse Luke of lying. But the facts are this. He was not alone in history. His story was substantiated by others. In fact, another early Christian wrote... <clears throat> According to Jesus' life and resurrection, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit to your right in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. Here Paul, it's the Apostle Paul, and just setting-wise, about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. He says that Jesus appeared after rising from the dead to 500 people many of whom were still alive while Paul was writing. Let's look at this account. Chapter 15, verse 3. We'll read down through verse 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, the facts that are getting compared here is death is real. And every human that's walked the face of the earth has had to encounter it. Jesus encountered it as well. But he did not stay dead. Paul stakes his reputation on it here in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to those who are disciples of his that he has led to Jesus and then discipled and taught how to be the church, the family of God. And he says, listen, the reality is this. The resurrection is true. If you don't believe me, here's the other people you can check with. You can check with James. You can check with the apostles. You can check with Cephas in the 12. But you can also check with 500 people that he appeared to at one time. See, Paul was not a guy who was staking his life on trivial things. We know Paul to be a zealot, to be a serious individual, to be one that was wanting to be right about what he was doing and following. But here it's as if Paul is saying, I'm right here. If you want to question the resurrection, ask me. If you don't believe me, you can go ask them. They all saw him. Over 500 people. Think about the eyewitness account to that. This wasn't a time where they had to just take it on blind faith. Paul was saying, a lot of these people are still alive. He says, they're walking around. You can go find them. Go ask them. If you and I were there in Corinth and had received such a challenge, what would you do? What would you do if somebody who had been spiritually discipling you challenged you to go substantiate what he's asking you to believe? I know, I know what I would do. I, I would want to go find out. I'd find some of those folks. Number one, they weren't far away. They were all around these people. You could choose to go do that. You could choose to ignore it and not follow this, this direction of faith. Or you could choose to ask people if they had actually seen the risen Christ. Now, in that predicament, upon finding them and asking them that question, if they had said no, you'd go no further, right? You'd say, ah, Luke was lying, Paul was lying. This isn't true. But upon finding those people and asking that question, if they had said yes, here's what I would probably do. I'd keep asking. <laughs> really? Who else? Show me. Over 500 people that they could point you to. If those 500 people that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 15 didn't actually exist, but Paul said that they did, the odds are his message would have gone no further. It might have fizzled out over the next couple years, maybe a decade. But there would be no foothold for this faith to ground itself in. 
Not only that, Paul and the other disciples demonstrated their confidence in the resurrection by their willingness to be persecuted even to death for proclaiming it to be true. What are the odds that they would have done that if it had all been made up? If they hadn't substantiated themselves, if they hadn't seen the risen Christ with their own two eyes. An author, Peter Kreeft, says it this way in a paragraph. He says, why would the apostles lie? Liars always lie for selfish reasons, right? We're human. We know this, right? You lie for selfish reasons. If the apostles had lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was this. Misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and eventual martyrdom. Kreef says, this is hardly a list of personal perks or personal advancement. See, the reality is this. Paul, the apostles, the 12, the 500 that Jesus appeared to, they weren't lying. They were relaying truth. John chapter 11, turn over there with me. In John chapter 11, I want to read for you verses 17 down through verse 27, as Kyleo has already read for us a little bit about. In this account, Jesus is talking to his closest personal friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who most accounts would tell you was probably his best friend, was Lazarus. In verse 17 of Luke chapter 7, it says, Now when Jesus had come, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha thought she was understanding what Jesus was saying about resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. That is the question that every Resurrection Sunday brings to us. Do you believe this? It's not up for debate who Jesus says that he was. He was clear. I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. I've come into the world to bring life and resurrection, to save sinners from their sin. The question is not, who was he? The question is, do you believe this? Let's evaluate who to follow 
by the one factor that's the same in every area known to man. So much like my basketball conversation I was having earlier about, I don't know, to a much lesser degree, obviously, about which decade and era I would take five players from and pit them up against everyone else in other decades. You have to find a common factor. We've said the common factor is death. Dwellment. Let's evaluate this and see if anyone's been able to defeat it. The reality is this. There are many belief systems that have come and gone throughout the world and throughout history. Jesus is the only one who has risen from the dead and who lives today. Friends, at this very hour, the cremated body of Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha, lies in a grave at the foot of the Himalayan mountains. He was cremated and placed there. He's still there. Those remains are there. Muhammad, the father of Islam, is currently buried in Medina, a town in Saudi Arabia. You can go visit his grave. And his body, his deceased body, is still there. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is buried in a place called Nauvoo, Illinois. That's not too far. You can go visit his grave. His remains are still there. Charles Darwin, he's buried at Westminster Abbey in London. A stone there marks where his body has remained since he died in 1882. His body has been right there. We could go on. Many other charismatic leaders, many other people trying to lead people away from belief systems that God has put in place and substantiated. They're all right where they were when they were placed after death. Jesus is not they're all dead. Their graves are all currently occupied. The, the, the legitimacy of their belief systems died with them. The legitimacy of their belief systems and their teachings died with them. The resurrection is the event that glorifies the one true God and establishes the life of Jesus forever. You've heard us say, and we say this often, the resurrection is the single greatest event that's ever happened in the world. It changes everything. By all measurable pieces, it is the one thing that sets Jesus apart. When we walk this through, the question still remains. Do you believe this? Now, for those first century Christians, belief took on a certain amount of risk. To believe meant they're probably going to lose their family. They probably might even lose their livelihood. If it was the right time and right place, or, or depending on how you consider it, the wrong time and wrong place, they might even lose their life. See, belief to the people that Paul was talking to, the people that Luke was writing to, Belief in the substantiated fact of the resurrection came at great cost, at great personal cost. It was a life-changing truth. 
There's a Canadian scientist, and I've used this quote a couple times, by G.B. Hardy. His name was G.B. Hardy. He one time said this, when I've looked at religion, I have said, there's two questions I want answered. One question, has anybody ever conquered death? It's the first one I want to ask. And two, he would say, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? G.B. Hardy goes on, he says, I checked the tomb of Buddha, it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, it was also occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied as well. But when I came to the tomb of Jesus, it was empty. And I said, well, there is one who has conquered death, answering the first of my two questions. So therefore, I have to ask the second. Did he make a way for me to conquer death as well? Upon opening the Bible, I have discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. Turn with me to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, we're going to read verses 15 through 19 together. And this is the quote that G.B. Hardy was using, where Jesus says, because I live, you shall live. In verse 15 of John chapter 14, it says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no longer. But you will see me, because I live you also will live. Jesus here substantiates this. Believing in him is what brings life. Not simply life in this world, in these broken bodies, fighting the world around us and all of the brokenness around us and viruses and, and sickness and injuries and death. Not just life here. It does bring abundant life here. But more importantly, it brings life eternal. Because he has risen from the dead, we no longer need to fear death. What a great message for us today. What a wonderful, freeing message. Don't live in fear. Live by faith. The fear that goes on around us, whether it's from an illness that's circling the globe or whether it's from violence that may be around you or whether it's from persecution for different things, maybe even your faith and your beliefs. None of these things should shudder us because Jesus defeated even death. What's the worst thing that corona could do to you? It might take your life in this world. For those who believe in Christ, it's not a problem because you get to go be with him forever. Now, to follow him and believe in him requires that your life exemplify that faith. So the resurrection for us is not a single thing once a year that we evaluate and come back to and celebrate like crazy on one Sunday morning. 
It's a truth that controls our every day. Paul was talking to the Corinthians because he wanted them to live lives of faith. Not just believe, but live it. The challenge is also for us. Jesus asks, do you believe this? And if you do, let your life reflect it. This looks like us as Christians living differently in the world around us, bringing hope and faith, dealing with people in love and grace as Jesus did. It also means that while we have fears, our fears are overruled by our faith. Jesus brings us life and hope. Because of the resurrection, he lives. Therefore, we also can live. I'm hopeful that our songs and our prayers and our celebration together this morning would give us the ability to be people of faith that when asked, do you believe this? We can resoundingly say yes. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And then that our lives would look like it. That we would be people that look different because of the resurrected Christ. I'm saddened that especially on a day like today, we can't all be here together. Most of you know, if you know me, that I am what some people might call a hugger. I like the hug. When this crisis is over, all of you better be ready to stand in line outside the building because we will be hugging everybody on the way in. It's gonna take a little time. There'll be some big old bear hugs waiting. If you don't like hugs, you might wanna find the other door. But in the meantime, we can know that apart from even being in the room together to encourage each other, that our greatest encouragement is in Christ. So have that today. Live lives that resoundingly say, I believe this. And the resurrection changes everything.